Good morning. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Anyone need a Bible? If you do, please raise your hand. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Disciples said to him, If such is the case of, of the man with his wife, It is better not to marry. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you just reveal the riches of your word this morning, Lord. The grace, Lord, of your word. The truth of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. just want to remind you that tonight at the evening service, Rick Downs, who is a pastor from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Cambridge, will be here. And I just encourage everyone to come and be blessed by him. His life and my life have this very uh, almost odd, I guess you would call it supernatural, intersecting, intertwining for for a very, very, very long time. And uh, now we're both here in Boston. I'll tell you more about that later, but... Rick Downs is is going to be here this evening. Okay, Matthew chapter 19, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings. These sayings, what sayings? He is referring to the sayings in chapter 18 that he shared with his disciples concerning who is greatest in the kingdom of God. Matthew 18 started with an argument among the disciples as to who was greatest in the kingdom of God. And each one of the disciples believed they were the greatest. They belonged on the right hand of Jesus, and they were trying to convince each other of that. I know the most Bible verses. I have the purest doctrine. I have had the most dramatic healings when I've gone out and... uh, ministered for Jesus. And Jesus settles the argument. He silences them. First, he takes a child into his hand, a small child. We know from the Greek word, child from about two to five years of age. And he says, uh, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? 
you become like this child. You become like this child. Meaning, love me like a small child does, unashamed, not caring what the world thinks. Develop a heart for me like this child's heart, uncorrupted by the cares of the world, the love of money, the love of fame, selfish ambition. Then in chapter 18, verse 5, he says, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Minister, says, uh, it says, receive one of these children in my name. In other words, minister uh, to little children. Minister to those who are least in the eyes of God. My wife, Stephanie, has uh, over the years been developing a friendship with a woman who uh, leads a children's ministry in one of the biggest churches in the world. And this woman confided in her once that she was really struggling to stay in the children's ministry, even though it had been very fruitful, because she said that so many in her church just despised, in a way, without maybe intending to despise, despise children's ministry. Look down on it. Why? There's no glory in it. When you're ministering to children, you're ministering to the least of the least. No one pays attention to you when you're, when you're doing that. And so uh, Jesus says, you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you minister to, the, to, the, to such as these children. And then he continues in Matthew um, 18, uh, verse 10, the parable of the lost sheep, a shepherd leaving the 99 sheep goes to find one sheep uh, that had strayed away. He says, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Then you value, listen, you value every child of God, every sheep, the way God values those sheep. My daughter Elise and I were in China last April, and we traveled into Mongolia, and we had the opportunity to have lunch with four or five Christian believers, and we did a lot of things in China, and we went to the Great Wall and the Forbidden City, but I tell you, my favorite time by far was meeting Christians there, particularly in Mongolia, because they were just so rare. It, it was like a rare jewel. They, they were just so precious, and, and, and just meeting someone who, for the first of to- time in their life, God had breathed life into them, and they were excited about Jesus, and, and they were just so precious. I, I wanted to give them a bear hug. Unfortunately, uh, at one point, I, I tried to, and they don't do hugging in China, and this, this poor little woman thought I was going to kill her or something, you know, I wanted to, because I just had to. She, it, they were just so precious. I did. I gave her a hug. Sue, could you sit next to Vera with me, for me, please? And I did, and 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 and, and it was it was a real precious thing. But um, I, I must say that the way I viewed them, oh, they're so precious. You know, we got to understand that's how God views them. That's how God views us. That's how God views every single child of, of God. And and. You know, we have a tendency in this country, there's so many Christians, you know, a sheep leaves, someone backslides, someone strays away. Oh, they're just another, they're just another believer. There's, there's 99 healthy, fluffy sheep around here. But God says, you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you go 
you go after that sheep. You love that sheep. You get that sheep back. And so then he continues on uh, with the remainder of the chapter 18. Again, the sayings of Jesus about who is great in the kingdom of God. It says In verse 15, it says, If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, if your brother or sister sins against you, don't just blow them off like the world does. What it says there, it says, If a brother sin against you, go to them. Don't just blow them off like the world does. Don't take the easy route and just keep the record of the wrong etched on your heart and go on with your life. You go to them, you forgive them, and you win them back. And then the rest of Matthew chapter 18 is the parable of the unforgiving servant. A servant uh, forgives his, uh, a king forgives his servant 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Ten times more than the entire income of Israel and Samaria. The king was forgiving a a servant an amount that was impossible for anyone in their uh, wildest dreams to to pay back. And the 10,000 talents represented the debt that you were forgiven of when Jesus was nailed to the cross and all your sin, past, present, and future, was laid on him and paid for. Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom of, of God, let everything you do, let every interaction you have with every human being be a reflection of how much you have been forgiven. And the cost that God paid in order to forgive you. Those are the sayings that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 19, verse 1. And so it says in Matthew 19, verse 1, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him And he healed them there. Now, at this point, in a roundabout way, Jesus is making his way, his final sort of uh, ascent into Jerusalem. This is, he's getting towards the end of his life here. And he'd been, he spent most of his life up in Galilee in northern Israel. And he is making his way down to uh, Jerusalem. Now, if you, you may remember that in Galilee, in northern Israel, great multitudes had followed him there. But we know uh, from the Gospel of John, almost the entire multitude abandoned him. In John chapter 6, after Jesus declared that he was the bread of life and that any man who, who wanted life had to come to him uh, if they were hungry, they needed to come to him, him to eat. If they were thirsty, they needed to come to him to drink. And, and at this point, they all left. Almost all of them left. And he turned and asked his disciples, well, are you going to leave too? And they said, where would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. So the multitudes all left him in northern Israel. And, and, and he comes to the area in Judea beyond the River Jordan in central Israel. On the way to Jerusalem, another multitude converges on him. This multitude, too, would abandon him. It's always amazing to me that the size of Jesus' following never affected him. Where there were huge crowds and people converging on him to the point where he couldn't eat or sleep as we saw earlier in the book of Matthew, or if there was just a handful of believers, or even if there was no one, like on the night he was arrested and everyone left, he never allowed his popularity or lack of to affect his message. He never let it 
waver. Let it wave. Let, he never wavered on his journey to the cross because of it. But here in Matthew 19, the multitudes are back. And again, the, uh, as we've seen many times before, the religious leaders, they couldn't bear the attention he was getting. And so they come and they try to trap him. Verse 3 says, The Pharisees came to him, testing him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. Now this is basically the same teaching that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's an expansion of it. The Sermon on the Mount was given in Galilee in northern Israel. He's in a different place now. He's basically given the same message in a different place. He's in central Israel, in Judea. And the Pharisees and other religious leaders, uh, what had happened, it's the same background as the Sermon on the Mount. They had laid the most extraordinary, oppressive, burdensome set of rules on the children of Israel. That's why Jesus refers to the children of Israel as the lost sheep of Israel. They were lost because they were, they were blinded by all the religious rules. There were over 600 laws on how to obey the Sabbath law. They couldn't make do with just the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. They had to come up with six, over 600 laws how to keep it holy. And they did the same thing with the divorce law from the Old Testament. Moses had sort of given a law on divorce, one of the many he, he gave, part of the Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 24. Moses said, if a man marries a woman and finds some uncleanness in her, he was, per, uh, the, he was allowed to give her a certificate of divorce. And so uh, what happened, same thing as the Sabbath, an enormous body of law and rules was built up by scribes and rabbis defining exactly what facts and circumstances justified a divorce? And so you can go back if you want. You can read all these writings. Actually, the records from that time are pretty good. All these writings and rulings and musings on when you're allowed to get a divorce. And, but by the time that Jesus came along, the prevailing rule was that you could give your wife a certificate of divorce for practically anything. One famous and well-respected Jewish rabbi, Hillel, declared that a divorce was uh, justified if, you, if a man didn't like the way his wife prepared a meal. Another said uh, a man was justified to, uh, to give a certificate of divorce if a man found a woman who was better looking than his wife. 
So men were getting a divorce for virtually any reason, and I'm told it was not unusual for a man to have 10 or 12 divorces, and it, which, of course, is an incredibly oppressive environment for women. Uh, Jesus Christ just loosed women from the oppression that they were in. If you, if you wanna, want any evidence of that at all, compare the Islam culture and the, and the Christian culture and, and, and can just compare them uh, of where women are. But anyway, an incredibly oppressive environment. But to give you an idea of the prevailing attitude of the time on divorce, consider what the disciples say in verse 9. This, is, this amazed me. This absolutely amazes me. Verse 9 Let's start with verse 9. It says, uh, And I say to you, Jesus Jesus speaking, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And, and let's, look at what his disciples say. If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now think about that. Think about that for a second. It, it, if I were to just tell you, if, if, if I, this was a question and answer session and someone asked me, well, Steve, what, are the, what does Jesus teach about uh, when it's permissible to have a divorce? And, and I said to you, well, it's, you need to stay married unless there's been adultery in the marriage. Otherwise, you need to stay married. Most of the people in this room, you'd shrug. Say, oh, yeah, that sounds reasonable. The disciples heard that and said, you're kidding it's better not to marry then. They were, in other words, they were cut out of the same cloth as everyone else. You know, the ideas that we have of the apostles, of these 12 guys with halos around their head, you know, they're following Jesus, you know, like this. No, they, they were no, of no such ilk. These men were just as messed up in their mind as everyone else. And they wanted, had, had, they wanted to have nothing to do with commitment in a marriage, just like the rest of the world. That's why they heard this perfectly reasonable teaching of Jesus. You need to stay married unless there's, uh, unless there's adultery. They said, oh, I better never get married if that's the case. Wow. That really amazed me when I saw that. So that's the prevailing attitude uh, of the time. You get married, you don't like something about your wife, you leave her for another. If you don't like that one, you leave her for another. If you don't like that one, you leave her for another. But anyway, uh, the uh, Pharisees and religious leaders were splitting hairs uh, at, at the time as to who could get a divorce. And by the way, anytime anyone ever starts doing that, they always get what they want. I mean, if there's anything I've noticed about you know, being in the body of Christ and, and counseling, as soon as someone starts splitting hair about some moral issue, you can tell where the, the conversation is going. They're going to do whatever they want. And the whole Sermon on the Mount is about the heart, not some fake, phony, external standard of righteousness. So they're splitting hairs about uh, what is divorced, and, and, and so they wind up at this prevailing view that basically you can uh, get divorced any time uh, that you want. That's why they say in verse 3, they come to Jesus and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? That was a prevailing view. It's, it's what we have today, no-fault divorce. Now, the mistake that Bible teachers make with these verses, 
over and over and over again. I, it's almost unbearable for me to listen to most messages on these verses because it, it just happens so much. Is that they labor under the mistaken belief that Jesus here is establishing a code of law regarding when it is permissible to get a divorce. Jesus is not doing that. John chapter 1, verse 17 says, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not come to establish a code of law about divorce or anything else. If he was establishing a law about, di- about divorce, then the condition that he lays out here for a permissible, permissible divorce adultery would be the only condition listed in the New Testament. It's not. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 lists another condition. And certainly Paul's not adding to what a code of law that Jesus established. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says that a man may divorce his wife if his believing, unbelieving wife leaves or vice versa. A woman may divorce her husband if her unbelieving husband leaves. So Jesus was not establishing a code of law about permissible divorce. But if he's not, what's he doing here? What is he doing? He's doing the same thing he does throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. He is telling these legalistic, religious, self-loving Pharisees, listen, by splitting hairs and arriving at whatever conclusion your heart desires and arguing day and night about meaningless details about when and how and why and where a divorce is permitted, you have completely missed the heart of God on this matter. The heart of God, Jesus is saying, is marriage. It's not divorce. Notice in Jesus' response, I love this, the Pharisees ask him about divorce. And as he so often does, he, he, it's almost like he didn't even hear their question. They ask him about divorce. He answers marriage. In other words, you want to talk about divorce? I'm going to talk about marriage. Verse 4 says, In the beginning, again, they ask him, Is it permissible uh, for man uh, to get a divorce for any reason? And, and then he goes on, verse 4, Immediately he says, In the beginning, God made them male and female. He made them male and female. For what? For divorce? No. So that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's why God made human beings male and female. So they will leave their mother and father and be joined and become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, stop arguing about man-made foolishness and start seeking the heart of God in this matter. God created marriage. What God has created, let no man tear down. Now, are you following me here? Is everyone following me? If these men were really righteous the way they thought they were, they would not have been talking about divorce. They would have been talking about marriage. 
Christian should be, must be, talking about marriage, not divorce. Jesus, that is saying, that is what he's saying. This teaching, as well as the entire Sermon on the Mount, is about righteousness. It's about the Christian life. It is about the mark of the Christian life. And I'm not going to review all 10 months of our study in the Sermon on the Mount, but I want to review one thing about the Sermon on the Mount because we're not going to understand this passage unless we understand this. The entire Sermon on the Mount hinged on one verse in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus said this, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes, you will by no means inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now that came as a shock to the thousands of people listening because the scribes and Pharisees were known as the most righteous people on the face of the earth. They spent their entire life writing and studying and and obeying the law. And here Jesus is saying, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he went on to describe that righteousness, and he just gives examples of that kind of righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. He says, a man or woman with this kind of righteousness gets rid of anger. It's a form of murder. Gets rid of lust. It's a form of adultery. A man of, or woman with this kind of righteousness, if she's slapped on the side, uh, 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 on one side of her face, she offers the other. If she is cursed, she blesses. If he's hated by someone, he does good in return. If she is spiteful, use and person by someone, she prays for him. And Jesus says here in Matthew, Matthew 19, if she marries, if she's married to a man, she's never to separate. What God has joined together, let her not separate. That's the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, the only man that ever met this standard of righteousness was Jesus. And the only way a man or woman will ever be able to imitate this righteousness is in Christ. The only way a man or woman will ever be able to uh, imitate this kind of righteousness is by being washed, by being sanctified, and being justified by Jesus Christ. That's it. Listen. My wife, Stephanie, and I have been married for almost 18 years. Each year has been a joy. It's been a treasure. Every year for 18 years. Each year is better than the previous one. And there's only one reason. There's only one. And I can tell you, the reason is not that we've deserved it. We deserve the opposite. It's not because we're good people, special people, gifted people. It's not because we've figured out the art of marriage It's because Jesus Christ saved us. Both of us. 
Right around the time we were married, Jesus Christ saved us. He took two lives the devil would have destroyed. And he saved us. He made us into something wonderful. He washed us. He sanctified us. He justified us, which is the privilege that every born-again believer is born into. Listen. And I really mean this, and some of you have said, heard me say this before. I have never met two people following the Lord who have been divorced. By definition, that's impossible. I really mean that. It, it is an impossibility. Because if you're a follower of Christ, and this is what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 19, if you're a follower of Christ, you're not thinking about divorce. You're not pursuing divorce. You're thinking marriage. You're pursuing marriage. You're pursuing a relationship that God Almighty Himself put in place. You know that from the depths of your heart that you have no business, no right to ever separate what God joined together. But I want to return to something I've already said. Jesus is not establishing a code of law here. He's simply telling us what the heart of God is. If you're a Christian and you're divorced, listen to me. Jesus is not establishing a rule of law here to condemn you. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth was given through Jesus Christ. There's grace for you in divorce. Why wouldn't there be? There's no special sin that grace of, the grace of Jesus Christ doesn't reach. And, and never let a, pharise, a pharisaical, self-righteous, legalistic pastor or teacher tell you otherwise. John chapter 1, verse 16 says, And of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We have all married, divorced, or single. We have all received the fullness of his grace. If you're divorced, there's grace for that. He's not establishing a code of law about divorce here. He's teaching us what the heart of God is. But if you're divorced, let me say this. If you're divorced and marriage is in your future, and I think Jesus, by the way, makes it pretty clear that that shouldn't be a given to you. But if it is, if you remarry, you must go into it not thinking about another divorce. You know, it, you know oh, if this doesn't work out, you know, I, I can just get a divorce. No, that's not what a Christian thinks. No, you must go into it thinking marriage, what God joins together. You have no right to separate. Christians, meaning people who have been saved by Jesus Christ and are following, whether they are going into their first marriage or whether they're in their second, third, or tenth marriage, must not be thinking divorce. They must be thinking marriage with the same attitude that God has, what he has joined together. Let not man separate. Now, it is true that Jesus gives here in Matthew 19 one example where divorce is permissible, adultery. But notice, Jesus does not say that divorce is required when there's adultery. Listen, 
There's never a situation, adultery or otherwise, where God says that divorce is required. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this whole subject of marriage, adultery and, and divorce, uh, is raised here uh, in chapter 19, right after the second half of chapter 18, which is all about what? Forgiveness. The Apostle Peter says in chapter 18, verse 21, Jesus, how often shall I forgive someone who has sinned against me seven times? Jesus responds, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Then Jesus talks about the king forgiving the servant 10,000 talents, a debt that was unimaginably high, irrationally high, and, and then how the servant refuses to forgive a hundred denarii, a hundred days' wages. Pretty hefty sum at the time, but Jesus talks about how wicked the person was for refusing to forgive it. We have been forgiven so incredibly much. How can we not forgive? However great the wrong, including when the wrongs inflicted on us are through a divorce or or adultery in a marriage. I know something of the pain of divorce. I'm a child of, of a divorced marriage. My parents were divorced when I was in my late 20s, and I have to tell you that when it was happening, I was so hurt, I distinctly remember thinking, I can't believe, I never knew that someone could hurt this bad. I I never knew pain like that existed. I I was just being relentlessly racked by emotional pain. And and I I didn't, up until that time, I was just naive. I thought people were just sort of, you know, ran around sort of happy. And, and, And just waves of emotional pain. I know something of the pain of divorce. And let me tell you, the opportunity to hold on unforgiveness when there has been a divorce is overwhelming or, or when there's been adultery in a marriage, overwhelming opportunity to hold on to unforgiveness. And that's why I believe that the Holy Spirit makes this whole issue of marriage, adultery, and divorce right on the heels of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness, the 70 times 7 kind, the 10,000 talent kind of forgiveness. The forgiveness that only God is capable of, the forgiveness that is the equivalent of, uh, of, of the wrongs of uh, a thousand, a ten thousand painful marriages and divorces uh, c- could cover. That's how much was forgiven. That's the ten thousand talent forgiveness. Chapter 18 and its incredibly powerful message on forgiveness is, is supposed to overshadow chapter 19 with its message on marriage, adultery, and divorce. In verse 8 of chapter 19, Jesus says, Yes, Moses permitted you to divorce, but that was because of the hardness of your heart. But there's a better way, what he is saying in light of chapter 18. He's saying forgiveness. There's a better way. It's forgiveness. I believe that is how chapter 19 must be interpreted. Let me conclude with this. I believe the proper attitude 
going into a marriage is advance forgiveness. Advance forgiveness, what's that? Advance forgiveness is forgiving your spouse in advance for any sin, however great, and yes, including adultery. In advance. If you go into marriage with that kind of spirit and that kind of dedication, you will have a marriage characterized by love, joy, commitment, dedication, and yes, faithfulness to the marriage. The only thing that will interrupt the marriage will be your death. And I understand there's no marriage in heaven. That's not going to stop me from chasing Stephanie around for all eternity, but uh, that's what I understand, that there's no marriage in heaven. Well, Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 19, again, it's about the heart of God. It's about the heart of God. It's not a code of law. It's about the heart of God, and I love to learn about the heart of God. The more I learn about the heart of God, the more I realize how much God wants to bless us, how much He wants to bless you. Let's go out and live according to God's heart for us. Let's pray. Father, I just thank You, Lord, for Your heart. Oh, the the riches, the treasures that are there. When you open your heart to us, Lord God, and you pour your, your life into our hearts. The, oh, the riches and the treasures and the love, Lord God, that you poured out on us when Jesus died on the cross, when he took all our sins upon him. Oh, the, reg- the, the, the treasures and riches, Lord, of, of, of your salvation, Lord. We've been saved into such a great salvation, Lord. And I just pray that, God, you would just give us the, the knowledge, the understanding, the taste of that, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, God bless you. Remember tonight we have Rick Downs and... Uh, If anyone needs prayer, please come up.